0: Have you ever found yourself saying, "Well, this just can't be coincidence." You find yourself in just the right place at just the right time, or something which you know just it couldn't just you, it couldn't happen by chance. And what the world calls coincidence, just random luck, um, we often see that actually, you know, it's like. Go something greater going on than that, and we see it as God's what we would call God's providence. And there are there are moments where God works in in really obvious, really tangible, really miraculous ways where He demonstrates His power. You know, you think about the mo. You know, you read through places in Scripture where you see Moses parting the Red Sea, or Or with the plagues, or when Jesus is walking, he's doing these amazing miracles, walking on water, or healing the blind and sick. Very clear ways that God is at work. Um, And even today, there are going to be times where there's going to be very physical, very clear ways that God is at work. But there are also the beautiful and the more subtle moments of what you could call his miraculous providence, the way in which behind the scenes, God is orchestrating events in such a perfect way. Um, I think um, a few years ago when I was up in Leeds, our church, a few of us went to, to Liverpool, it's a cool place, and we're basically helping out uh, about like a week-long kind of mission trip where we're kind of with a load of churches and we're doing lots of different activities to reach out to the community and share the gospel. One of those activities was door-knocking which I ended up doing, and I can tell you the story of how I ended up doing it, because that was, in itself, was a problem. Um, but basically, on the, one of the days I was doing it with a lady, and we just happened to pick this particular road, and as we're going down this particular road, we're going through all these different doors, and people some people are away, some people are, you know, just aren't in, because it's during the middle of the day. And we get to this one house. We knock on the door. Don't hear anything, don't hear anything. And then it suddenly opens, and this guy pops his head up and then we're trying to start talking to him but it's quite clear that he doesn't speak much English and then bit by bit other people start to poke their head around the corner until we've got like 10, 15 people in this corridor in front of us and it turns out that these guys were Romanian and basically they had kind of come over as kind of like this kind of big kind of networking family but they were being evicted from that house that very day and they had nowhere to go they had no no jobs Nothing, nowhere to live nowhere to sleep so they were literally that evening going to be end up on on the street just sleeping in a park so then I, I turned to the the, the the lady next to me who was kind of with me kind of an elder well a more elderly well she isn't old but <laughs> <laughs> she's older than me so and we, t- and we turned to each other we're like well we've we got to do we've got to do there must be something we can do um, and in the end we we brought them to kind of one of the churches where um, they were like serving lunch and we thought, well, at least we can do is get them some food. And then in the end, we managed to actually get them tickets so that they could go back home. Wow. Um, like like a coach journey. How long that would have taken? That would take a long time. But we managed so that they could go home. And it's just an amazing way in which we were just in the right place at the mm-hmm. right time, you know, so that we could bless these people. Mm-hmm. And there are many moments, and I'm sure you can think in your own life, where just at the right time, just in the right moment, God places you in the right place. Or he, he, you bump into that person you didn't expect. Um, and, and this is one of the themes that we see in the, in the book of Ruth. We see fleshed out in this book, this, this short four-chapter book. We won't see any visits from angels. We won't see any audible voices from God, we won't see miraculous healings, or parting of seas, or victorious battles. And yet, God is at work just as much as he has been in every other book of the Bible, and just as much as he is today. I think it's one of the encouraging things about Ruth, is just, it encourages us because often in our own lives, we don't necessarily always see the big miraculous signs. So, rather God is still at work and this is one of the those encouraging stories Um, but before we jump into it and we will um, be looking at it um, doing quite a bit of reading so that's all cool Um, first of all I just want to set the scene for where this falls within the narrative of the Bible because it would be good to, to know where this all falls in and essentially the events of Ruth take place during what is commonly known as the Judges' period in Israel's history. Which is a very dark period in, there, in Israel in which, after receiving the long-awaited promised land, so think about it, as a ne- the, you know in essence, Israel becomes a nation in Egypt is enslaved, and God sends Moses, takes them out of Egypt, and then through Joshua leads them into the promised land. And then what, but then once they're in the promised land, once they actually have the land, they then begin to go through this cycle. And it's this, they receive, there are moments where they will have a season of blessing, where, a season where they're following God and things are going well. And yet soon they become comfortable and they take their eyes off of God and, and they turn away from him. And in that moment, when they turn their back on God, God allows them to experience hardship. He allows them to go through a tough period until a point when they finally cry out to God. At which point then God sends a he sends a judge to set them free from oppression or from being attacked. And then they experience peace again. But the problem is, the cycle then repeats. And you see, throughout the book of Judges, that happens time and time Again and if you were in your bibles if you were to flick over the page to the book of judges which is just before the book of Ruth you will see in that very last verse of the book of judges we get a perfect summary of the state of Israel at the time where it says in judges 21:25 in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Perfectly sums up the judges' period. The problem wasn't Israel's lack of a physical king, but rather they failed to acknowledge the true king, and that was God himself. God wanted to be their king, the one whom they followed, the one whom they trusted, the one whom they obeyed, but instead they replaced God they see, God wants to be the king of their hearts. But instead, they replace him. And instead of God sitting on the throne of their lives, they put themselves. And as a result, you see in Judges, some of the most atrocious acts that you'll see throughout the whole of Scripture. And it is, it, it is down to that. It's because people, instead of choosing God to be their king, they chose to make themselves king, and this mantra—think about it. That essentially, it is—it is, it is simply the—the the message: you can be God. That's the message. Like right? you can be God, and and that message has been prevalent ever since Satan uttered those those similar words in the garden, right? When he says to Eve and Adam, "You can be like God," and and that is even often the message of our culture today which is you can be good you don't let anybody tell you what you can or cannot do or define you but you make your choice you decide what you want to be and yet when we see that fleshed out in scripture it always ends badly but rather God says "Look, I want to be the tr- I want to be the king of your heart the true king because I'm going to be a better king than you ever will be and that's a, a good question before we even look at the book of Ruth, is, is that, is, who's the king of your heart? And are you, are you at a place where you're just tired of putting yourself on the throne? And are you willing to embrace the lordship of a far better king? So this is the backdrop to our story. And this is where our story begins. It is a culture where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, including a man, including a father, a husband from the town of Bethlehem, Bethlehem a man called Elimelech. Oh, Elimelech. I said it right in my head. See, when I'm putting the pressure. Uh, Elimelech. There we go. <laughs> right, let me read this for you. And because we're going to be jumping here and there, I'll just kind of read it. But you can follow along. I'm reading from the English standard version verse 1 says this so in the days when judges ruled there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons the, na- the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the sons and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilian Killian what a cool name and they were Ephraites from Bethlehem in Judea they went into the country of Moab and remained there as chapter 1 begins we're introduced to this man called Elimelech we're not given a whole lot of information about this man but what we do know is that he makes a choice he makes a decision which ultimately turns out to be a bad one Um, a decision that will end up having devastating effects on his family and as we read through scripture as I'm going to talk to the guys for a second men, men, where you at men as men we are called to lovingly lead um, our wife and children and this involves being discerning about the choices we make because it doesn't just affect us it affects them too Think about what Paul says in, in Ephesians, right? If we, in Ephesians chapter 5, if we have been given the responsibility to love our wife as Christ loved the church, and in a few verses later when he talks about and bring up our children in the instruction of the Lord, we have to be right in the choices we make. We have to be right in how, in how we lead. And we can't just think about their physical needs, but we also must address their spiritual needs because um as as men as as fathers as husbands our families will not just be affected by what would be called our sin of commission so when you actively do something wrong but also our families will be affected when we when we by our sin of omission which is basically when we fail to do what is right so commission is when you actively do something wrong but uh, a sin of omission is when you fail to do what is right when you just neglect to do something which you should do You think back to the Garden of Eden that was Adam Adam should have stepped forward when Satan is talking to Eve Adam should have stepped forward and said no, what you're saying is wrong we're not going to do it but as you read the text one of the most haunting verses in that passage is where it simply says and Adam was there Adam was just watching and he doesn't he doesn't do anything he doesn't say anything and as men we're called to to lovingly step forward and lead and we're not going to be perfect at it but rather we're in faith trusting Jesus we step forward with him seeking to follow his lead and as we follow his lead we'll then be able to lead others better as well and it's ultimately going to be look as I follow him also follow as well and we see here, when we look at this text, we could be like, okay, so what's so wrong about the choice that Elimelech makes, right? It makes economical sense. There's a famine in the area that he is, so he goes to another country so he can provide for his family, right? So he's in Bethlehem, there's a famine, so they go to Moab. And on a surface, that looks like an inconsequential decision. And although we don't know the process he went through to making this choice, or the heart behind it. You know, we could ask, did he pray about it? Did he take godly counsel about it? We don't know. But in my opinion, this is my opinion, I would argue it was the wrong decision and it was simply because of where he chose to go, which was this place called Moab. And it goes to a different country, He goes to Moab, and basically the Moabites were descendants of Lot, and that's an interesting story for another time um, but essentially the Moabites were at times enemies with Israel and perhaps more significant than that they worshipped the false god Chemosh what a cool name eh? <laughs> that's not that cool they worshipped the false god called Chemosh and, as it, as, and that's mostly not the way you say it but you know go with me Chemosh C-H-E-M-O-S-H and as Elimelech takes his family into Moab, he's ultimately leading them away from fellowship. Think about it. Granted, Israel's not in the best spiritual state at that time, but Israel was still God's people. There was no church in Moab. There was no group of believers to fellowship with in Moab. No place to go and worship the true living God. You know, there were no godly ladies for his wife to seek counsel and to be invested in. There were no other sort of godly families that they could join side and kind of do life with. Eliminate perhaps fails to realise just how important fellowship is. And even staying in Bethlehem, although it may have been more difficult physically, perhaps it would have put them in a much better place spiritually. Because the truth is, we we need fellowship. We need to be in community with other believers. It's, it's what God is not. Any call, he's called us to do it. He knows we're called to do it because, man, we just make terrible lone wolves. We just can't do it on our own. And we read in the next verse. So look at the next verse. For me, verse three to five says this. But Eliminate, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took these took Moabite wives the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth they lived there about ten years and both Malon and Killian died so that the woman was left without two sons and her husband Naomi is left to bury her husband and I I can't imagine how difficult that must have been but this, this was not her only funeral because years later she would have to bury her very own sons Uh, and that which they tried to avoid it still took place and that which took place was death and Elimelech has chosen to take his family away from their people into a fallen land a land where people did not worship the true living God and as a result his sons in the wake of his death they also make a, a, a sinful choice and they choose they choose to to marry those to marry girls of Moab. And what's so wrong about that? The, the the thing which is wrong about that is not that they married somebody of a different culture or different nationality. The problem is they married somebody of a different faith. And God speaks multiple times, both Old Testament and New Testament, about the dangers of that. You know, if you think of um the most prime example is is King Solomon. But it says this in, in 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. There are two things wrong with that. Well, one well, first thing wrong with that is he loved many women. That's not good. <laughs> and it says this, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, and then it lists these, Moabite, which we're kind of being about now, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And and as I say, God doesn't have an issue with interracial marriage. The reason he tells Israel not to marry people of other nations is not because they're a different nationality, but because they're of a different faith. You know, and I'm often reminded of what Jesus says, not concerning relationships, but just but about other things where he talks about how a divided house cannot stand. If you're divided on the most important issue, you're not going to be able to stand. And it continues, you you read on further on in that passage in Kings where it says, For Solomon was, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father, David. And it says to everyone, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Ultimately, Solomon's heart is turned away from God, to the point where he's actually building... These idols, building temples to these idols, one of which the false gods we've even heard about so far. Hundreds of years after the events of Ruth, because Ruth comes before Solomon, and we'll Mm -hmm. talk about that, why that's significant as well. But hundreds of years after the events of Ruth, Solomon is going to make the the same mistake as Malon and Kilion. He will marry a woman, or women rather, of different faiths, and his heart will be turned away from God. I mean, I Jesus calls us to learn from, from that mistake. And the reason he puts that, because we could be like, oh, That's, it seems unfair, right? Why, why should God tell me how, who I can and shouldn't marry? But may I say this, if who you choose to marry is, is one of, well, if, I would say, maybe the second most important decision you're going to make. First, most important decision you're ever going to make is who you're going to worship like what God are you going to worship second decision is who, who are you going to choose to spend the rest of your life with and as, and if, if, if that is such an important choice of course God wants to speak into that of course he wants to guide us in that and of course he wants to as we even saw right at the beginning he wants to be king and lord of that because he's going to make a better king and a better lord than we could so back to our I'll text back to our story and we'll start to kinda of pick things up a bit now. And Naomi finds herself in a place where she has lost it all. And a foreign land with no husband, no sons, an aging widow, she looks around in despair. She's lost it all. Well, almost all. It says this in verse six. <coughs> with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my room that may become your husbands? But Ruth clung to her. You see, Naomi, basically, Naomi steps off to return home. She has heard that the famine has ended and says her goodbye to the wives of her sons. And initially, they're reluctant to leave, but Naomi insists, explaining that there's nothing for you if you come with me, there's nothing if you stay. I can't, I can't give you anything, there's nothing I have to give you. But despite Naomi's objections, one of the women clings to her, she refuses to leave her. And that's Ruth. And Naomi turns to Ruth and literally implores Ruth to remain in Moab. Listen to what she says. Says this in verse fifteen. And she said, See, your sister in law has gone back to her people. So all was already gone, and, and to her gods return after your sister-in-law. Now see what Naomi is saying here, because uh, she essentially says, look Ruth, don't come with me, go go back to your land, but not only that, go back to your gods. She essentially is like, doing the opposite of evangelism. I mean, how sad is that, right? <laughs> She's like, can you imagine somebody being like, yeah, I want to come to church, church with you, and you're like, no, 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 you can't come, go, just go back and worship wherever you were worshipping before. <laughs> She's like, you know, an and you know, worst evangelist ever goes to Naomi at this point. She's like, yeah, just go go back, worship the gods that you worship. But thankfully, Ruth really is determined. And she says this in verse sixteen Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God where you die I will die and there will I be buried may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her she said no more in a chapter which is full of death full of darkness full of despair We have our first glimmer of hope, our first glimmer of light, and it starts when a widowed foreigner decides to put her trust in the true, living God. In essence, Ruth is converted. She has a conversion. She says, look, I actually want to follow this God that you follow. And sometimes we can be so consumed with the hardships surrounding our lives that we fail to see the miracles right in front of us. And how miraculous is that? Somebody coming to know God. What could be more miraculous than that? Somebody <coughs> giving their life to Christ. And unfortunately, Naomi is, is, is so consumed with grief and bitterness that she just can't, she just can't see it right now says this in the next verse verse 19 closing up the chapter so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem and when they came to Bethlehem the whole town was stirred because of them and the women, the women said is this Naomi and she says to them, do not call me Naomi call me Mara for, all, for the almighty has dealt bitterly with me I went away full and the lord has brought me back empty why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi does what many of us do when we go through suffering which is we blame God. You know, God, she says, remember we just read, God has dealt <laughs> bitterly with me. God has brought me back empty. God has brought calamity upon me. That's how Naomi is feeling in that moment, the rawness of that moment. And if we find ourselves in that place, that place of, of sorrow and despair, when we find ourselves in that place of going, God, why? How do we respond in those moments? And not too long ago, I was thinking about this. I can't remember what, what made me think about it. But I was thinking about the subject of suffering and and asked myself, as a Christian, what what hope do I have? You know, Christians, as Christians, what sets us apart from the rest of the world, especially when it comes to the area of suffering? What about our faith gives us hope and comfort during the most difficult moments of life. And as I was thinking about it, I'm sure there were more reasons. But I reasoned that there were three things I came up with. I'm sure you could come up with three things. But I reasoned that we have hope as Christians during moments of suffering because of three things. One, because Jesus will be with us through it. Jesus promises to be with us in our suffering. He promises to be our comfort in that moment. He doesn't leave us to do it alone, but while he says, look, I'm with you, I'm not going to forsake you, even through life's most difficult moments. And it related to that, he knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus, I mean, think about it, none of us chooses to suffer, but Jesus actually didn't have to suffer and he chose to. He could have lived a pain-free life, which many of us would maybe even like. But he actually chooses to suffer. And he knows what it's like to suffer. So first thing, Jesus is with us in our suffering or through our suffering. The second thing is this, that Jesus will ultimately bring us through it. So Jesus is with us in the midst of it, but then Jesus will also bring us through it even if even even if one day that is simply through death, we know that as Christians, this world is as painful as it gets nothing it they as what we experience now is the worst that it gets for us, and no matter how difficult and painful it gets, even if it is through actually us dying going to be with him, he promised it's it's gonna end he is gonna take us through it. And maybe we see that in the immediate time in our lives, as we'll kind of see with Naomi and Ruth. We, we are going to see a redemption. But maybe if we don't see it in our life. Maybe we do pass away, but even as we pass away, as we go to be with him, that, in some way that's him, that is him bringing us through. Bringing us to be with him where he will wipe away every tear. Where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow. And then the third thing is this, is that Jesus uses it for a purpose. And we see that throughout Scripture, although we often don't see it in the moment. A bit like Naomi right now. She cannot, she, she can't see what God's doing. And it's only going to be towards the end of the story that she's going to actually get, she begin to see what God's doing. And to her, she doesn't even see the fulfillment, she doesn't even see the fullest of that because through this story, through this event, way past years, past when Naomi and Ruth have passed away, we're going to see the effects of this, of this season, the effects of what God is doing right now. And it's because of these things that during moments of suffering we have cause for hope rather than cause for bitterness. We have cause for joy rather than despair because of Jesus, because We have a Redeemer who promises to be with us in the midst of our pain, to bring us through and to use it for a purpose. He is our Redeemer and the story of Ruth is not only about God's providence, it's also going to be about God's redemption because at Naomi's darkest moment, God was still present. Putting in place his plan for redemption Because as as the scenes of chapter 1 come to a close, we are introduced to the redeemer of the story, the man who's going to bring redemption to Naomi and Ruth, and this man's name is called Boaz. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2, where we read this, Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the weepers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Embedded in those three verses, well, right at the end, there is that phrase, she happened to come. Uh, you know, she, hap- she just happened to come across this particular field. You see, as Ruth goes out to glean, and that was a practice which God established as a means to provide for the poor within the community, essentially they were able to, when people were kind of harvesting the grain, that which kind of was left behind, that which would fall behind, then the poor could then have and collect to use and make for food. And, and 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 as I say, as of all of the fields that she could have ended up in, she ends up in the field, in the part of the field that was belonging to a man called Boaz, And which at this time she does not understand is significance. And as I say, this man, Boaz, and we, we you know, we ask ourselves the question, can this be just a coincidence? Since Boaz is from the same family as Elimelech, he can act as a redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. So I need to maybe give a little bit of background of what this actually means. Why is this guy, Boaz, a redeemer? And what does this mean? So this is, he's, he's uh, he In relation to who he is, he's known as, was referred to what is known as a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was basically the nearest relative who has the responsibility to redeem or buy back something from a family member. Okay, so the responsibility fell first to someone's brother, then uncle, then cousin, and finally to the nearest living clan relative. So this law. allowed for a kinsman redeemer to redeem the land of a family member that became poor and was forced to sell it. And this was done to keep the land in the family. But also a kinsman redeemer, well as a kinsman redeemer, Boaz also had the right, well, Boaz had the right to purchase Naomi's land, but this also included he had the right to marry Ruth and producing offspring for the line of Elimelech so, um, so basically here Boaz has the opportunity to be a redeemer to, res- to restore fortune and children and life and family back to Naomi and back to Ruth he's in a position where he can do this and we'll talk about specifically next week what that actually will end up looking like but I want to say it again out of all the fields that she could have ended up in she ends up in the field of the man who could actually redeem her who could actually restore that which was lost this is not coincidence and it's not just plain good luck as some people would have it this is God is God at work in his grace and providence, working in the background to bring about redemption for his family? Read with me, verse 4 to 7. says this, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you, and they answered, The Lord bless you. Now take note of Boaz. I mean, first of all, imagine if your boss came into work and was like, <laughs> The Lord be with you, and you replied, And the Lord bless you. I mean, I, don't, I, I mean that's pretty awesome. I, can, I must admit, that has never happened to me. But maybe one day, you know. But if if any of us as Christians are put in the place where we get to be bosses, Boaz here is is a. I think personally, it's a good example of what a good boss should be. It, it appears as we read about him and his character, he seems to be a guy who really cares about people, and um, who who blesses people. Um. And, we, and we'll now see his kindness. And I his kindness doesn't just go to his workers, but it actually he's going to pour out his kindness on this woman. Carry on where it says, And Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the, the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest you see Boaz notices Ruth and I don't know maybe she just wasn't dressed like a normal Israelite or maybe she looked a bit different because she was a Moabite but there's something about Ruth which she kind of stands out and he asks his fellow workers like hey who, who is this lady? Why, where has she come from? who is this? is gleaning and they explain that this is Ruth And then we see next that Boaz now approaches Ruth. He says this in verse eight. Now listen, and this is Boaz talking to Ruth. So think about: Boaz sees her gleaning, and he goes up to her, and he says this. Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are weeping, and go after them. Have I not charged young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn." You've got to love Boaz, and I think Boaz is the kind of man that, men, we should... There are many attributes about Boaz which which we should be imitating. You know, he's, he's, he's a sort of guy, guys. Guys that we should become like and ladies. If you're looking for a guy, look for a guy like Boaz. Because, check this out, firstly, See how he speaks to her, how he addresses her. He calls her, he calls her my daughter. There's care and there's respect, even in what he says. But then he also then displays kindness. He offers protection. He invites her to remain gleaning in his fields. And what is radical about this, and this is what Ruth understands as well, is think about it, this. In before him is a poor, widowed immigrant. And, and, and many people, not just then, but now, would look down on such a person. They wouldn't want to give a, that kind of person a time of day. And yet, here Boaz does. He addresses her, he talks to her, he offers protection to her, and, 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 and Ruth is just humbled by this response. It says in verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And then in verse 11, Burroughs answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And he said this, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke, spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. A few things to note, Boaz sees her character. He sees the kind of woman that, that Ruth is and is becoming. Boaz acknowledges God's work in all of this, I love how he says the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He said, like, "I want to acknowledge first of all, Ruth. I'm amazed by how you've treated your mother-in-law. Secondly, I also want to note that may God bless you for what you've done, as you have sought, as you have sought refuge in God. And Ruth ultimately leaves. She she's left." comforted by his kindness. And if we continue on, verse 14 to 16, Boaz continues to extend kindness. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean do not rebuke her he's like man I'm going to make it easy for you <laughs> to get as much as much you know to glean as much wheat re- as you can he's like man don't, don't rebuke her even, even even you know even let let some of the stuff drop behind so she can pick it up you know and it says this verse 17 so she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ether of barley and she took it up and went into the city her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied and her mother-in-law said to her where did you glean today? and where have you worked? blessed be the man who took notice of you Naomi's like girl you did good what, where did you go? I don't know where you went or what you did but this is awesome I did not expect this much back And she says, Ruth explains, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Who would have thought, I mean, how surprised Naomi must have been in that moment, to be like, wow. Ruth, of all the places you ended up, you ended up in the field of one of the people who could redeem us. who One of the people who could change the course of our lives. And then it says, and then Ruth says this, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lives with her mother-in-law. Chapter 1 begins with death and chapter 2 ends with hope. Bit by bit, pieces are being put in place to bring about redemption. And of all the places Ruth could have ended up, as we already said, it was in the field of her Redeemer. And the story of Ruth is the beautiful story of how our amazing God of Providence is at work behind the scenes, in the small details of our lives, to bring about redemption. And even today, we even got to hear a story about this, from P.T., if any of you are on the WhatsApp group, P.T. had an interesting... Let me see if I can grab the. He had one of those divine encounters. Where he basically says this, took a picture, and there's this girl here, basically, let me explain. Where he says this, hello, beautiful peeps. That's how he does. This is great. You can't see it perhaps, but behind the fringe there is no hair left. Tortured by her folks as a child, yep, told me that on the plane, and asked if there was such a thing as a loving dad. Well, 35 minutes later, Grace and I were praying to her heavenly father, watching him make her new. What an awesome God we serve. And later on he says, she she had said before the plane, God, if you're real... Send someone to pray for me today. What a lovely way in which—just another one of those moments—the providence of God bringing bringing PT in in the position where he meets this girl and then is able to share Jesus. And think about it: this girl was actually praying. Hey God, if you're real, send somebody. And what does God do? He sends somebody. It's it right. it Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he and he a goofy smile with us. Exactly, and he says, "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful story, and 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 God does the same with us as well. You know, he he, mm-hmm. God is able to position us and use us and put us in places mm-hmm. to bring about redemption. And the story of Ruth, as I say, is a story about providence. And just how God just al- aligns things in such beautifully subtle ways, in ways that you just couldn't have made up. But Ruth also points to the greatest story, well, the greatest story of redemption. And that is our story of redemption. Because as we'll see, and we'll see how Boaz becomes a redeemer in this family, and, and what that means to us as well, But thousands of years later from this event, a greater Baraz is going to come. A greater kinsman redeemer is going to come and that's Jesus. Jesus is going to come to earth. He's going to become a man. He's going to die on a cross in our place. Taking all of our sin, our shame upon himself. Taking the punishment that we deserve. So that as he rises again on the third day, he could become our redeemer that when we put our faith and trust in him we could be moved from that place of death and be moved and brought to a place of life so as we continue and as, um, next week hopefully we'll get to finish the book of Ruth I know we did a lot of reading so thank you for bearing with me today but it's a great story of God's providence but also it's a story of redemption how we see Naomi and Ruth taken from this place of darkness and death and by the end of the story we'll see them taken to this place of life and joy and redemption and that's the same for us in our sin we were left in in death and darkness but through the redemption of Jesus we are now brought to life so as we think about the story of Ruth let's be encouraged that God is at work in the small details of our life but that he is also the ultimate redeemer. And if we put our faith and trust in him, he's redeemed us. So let's pray together, God. Father, we want to say thank you for this, this love story that we find embedded in the middle of the Old Testament. Lord, we want to thank you that you are the God of providence. Lord, as we even hear of a story today of how you... You, you, you bring two people together so that the gospel can be shared and li- a and life changed and just as you are at work today you were at work then with Ruth as well putting together the pieces so that Ruth could be redeemed so that Naomi could be, be redeemed and that's just pure pure grace Lord pure grace Lord and and I want to pray that we, when we look at this story we see how that at the darkest moment of Naomi's life and in Ruth's life you were, you're, you're at work, you're present you're bringing things together for your plan and for your purposes and Lord may you give us hope in, in our own moments of darkness in our life all that that you are present with us Lord if we put our faith and trust in you you promise never to forsake us that you are with us and you are bringing about your purposes working underneath the scenes although at times we, we confess or we can't see it and forgive us for the moments where we are like Naomi where we do become embittered where we where we do lash out and anger at you Lord forgive us Lord and rather change our hearts Lord that we would trust you more that we would love you more Lord and Lord may you that we would fix our eyes upon you Lord that we would Lord and I'm often reminded Lord that in those moments if we ever do doubt your love we're to look to the cross because the your death on the cross is the greatest proof that you love us Lord and that you're in control so Lord we want to thank you that you are our redeemer Lord and that you are in control working all things for your glory but also for our good and Lord as we go away today, help us to meditate on these things Lord help us to respond uh, and, and 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 live in response to these things as well Jesus in your name we pray amen